It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, and welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. On this episode, we're joined by a friend of our show and Utah political consultant, Ann Dent. And my, oh my, there is uh, so much to begin with, starting with the fact that our president, uh, as we found out uh, early this morning or late last night, however you, you want to describe it, uh, he and uh, First Lady Melania Trump have tested positive for corona, I mean, for COVID-19. And they are now under quarantine for the next uh, couple of weeks. And after so long having kind of uh, downplayed the impact of uh, coronavirus, not wearing a mask for for the longest time, having large-scale events, with again, without masks, and then only recently beginning to wear them sparingly, we find that uh, he had been actually not feeling as well, you know, uh, in doing some of those events as he had been previously. And, and we now know it probably was because he had come down, uh, contracted the virus. And it first became, came to light when uh, his communications director, Hope Hicks, had also tested positive. And then there's others in the uh, close White House inner circle who may also be um, potentially uh, infected. Though we do know that uh, Mike Pence and his wife have tested negative uh, thus far. So, ladies, I want to ask, um, I'll start with you, Anne. What are your, what are your thoughts when you first heard about this? I think the first thoughts were, I mean, this was inevitable, right? And um, I was doing my nightly Twitter surfing and came across his, the president's tweet. This is how he announces things. Um, you know, the first lady and I have tested positive for the first time he's ever said COVID-19. Usually he calls it the China virus, but when he tests positive for it, he calls it COVID-19. It's just so ironic. You know, there was the debate the other night and he is berating um, Joe Biden for wearing a large mask. And Joe, you wear a mask everywhere you go. You are always in a mask. And it's just the irony of it is huge. And Tuesday, Hope Hicks tests positive and he, I, I know they all knew and he was still in public with people. He's not a big mask wearer and he hosts a fundraiser on Thursday and it's just such negligence and it just shows how much he's taken this seriously. It shows, um, really why this country is struggling with this COVID virus because we've had a lack of leadership and, um, you know, our leaders have not taken it seriously. It's unfortunate. So my thoughts, you know, I, I agree with what Anne said that, that I think that to some degree it was inevitable because we do know that, you know, continuing to, you know, go about your life in a normal way and be in close contact with people, in, especially indoors, is a is a huge risk factor. Um, and they're meeting so many people from all over the country and sometimes all over the world. And I think we we've heard about a couple of close calls where other foreign diplomats have had 
have tested positive after meeting with the president or the vice president. And so I, I do feel like there was this, they're at greater risk anyway, because I mean, that's not, you can't telecommute that job. You have to go out and do it. But he's also been attending some indoor rallies and, you know, something that in the, during the debate, he, I think he said he had one, but that's not true. I think he had another one planned coming up this week. But so I guess here's my thoughts. I think everyone should read the section of The Great Influenza by John Barry, um, where he describes uh, President Wilson um, coming down with uh, the flu. He got the influenza during the Treaty of Versailles negotiations, and he was incredibly sick. They had some of the um, negotiations in his room. Um, it completely changed the dynamic of the of the negotiation, and it really led to him conceding some things that he was pretty hardline on at the beginning, including basically gutting um, Germany's military. And and he was, I wonder sometimes had he done things that had he gotten his way, had they that treaty been different, um, if we wouldn't have had World War Two. Um, that was his thought, but he it, obviously, he never spoke about influenza. He never acknowledged it. He never told, gave advice about it. He did the opposite of Trump. He, he instead of talking about it and calling a hoax, he just said, nobody's allowed to report on it. Nobody's allowed to talk about it. The media was not allowed to, to say this is a real thing. Um, and and, it, and that was a great, a tremendous problem. And I'm sure we lost, you know, thousands more lives if, you know, or, you know, because of that, the way he handled it. Um, and they do believe now, look, doctors who've looked at his autopsy reports uh, and, and his medical records, that it did impact him. And, and there is a brain fog that accompanies COVID. They've done studies on this. It impacts people's hearts. It impacts people's brains. It impacts their lungs, sometimes long-term. And we don't know right now what those long-term effects will be or if they go away, if there's anything that can be done to mitigate them. It's a very serious illness. And I think that I'm, you know, I'm heartbroken that we have this kind of leadership that sort of denied it or, or said it's not that big a deal because there's one, there's two options, you recover or you die. And there's all this space in between and there's a lot of suffering going on because of it. And I just, uh, I just think that different leadership, more empathetic leadership, more compassionate leadership maybe would have been different. But I also struggle with blaming him for getting sick because I know so many people who did everything that they were asked to do and take, took every precaution and got sick. And there's a lot of stigma attached to the virus. And a lot of people don't even want to talk about how they got it. And I really think we do need to have open, honest discussions to understand, you know, how it's being spread and what we can do to mitigate it. And I've learned from the people that who've been infected when they tell me their stories, but a lot of them don't want to tell them on the record. I just think there are a lot of issues that this creates and it's going to make it, I wish this virus was not a political issue. That's what I wish. I wish that this had be, had remained a medical issue and we can argue about all kinds of other topics. But as far as medical issues, like listen to the doctors, listen to scientists and do what they ask us to do. It's a medical issue, not a political issue. And I want to ask you if you could, uh, politically speaking, what impact what might this, might have, this have, have on the election, the election as, we as we approach it, approach it in only a few, only weeks. few weeks? So that was a huge, so then, you know, this tweet comes out and then it is, I, I'm one that loves our media. I'm always just um, so incessantly like on every um, channel watching everything and 
just immediately like Sanjay Gupta at 1am gets in a suit is, you know, um, on CNN and MSN as 24 hour coverage of the president and um, all of the theories going around. And, you know, I probably had 20 texts saying like, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think he's really positive? Why do you think that they're doing this now? And I can't, obviously, I can't for sure say um, if this is a political strategy move from somebody who works on campaigns in a much smaller level. I tend to think everything is done for strategy when we're campaigning. Um, I think that this debate went so badly. Um, one reason would be he's not going to be able to do debates for the next two weeks. And another tactic is that, um, you know, he could say, okay, I worked through COVID and it was hardly anything for me. So COVID's not a big deal. I've had the flu and it's worse. And I can see him in this administration pushing through that um, line saying, COVID's not a big deal. We, we can get through this. And so I don't know the strategy of this administration or why um, or they've released this right now, but I think that there's some underlying um, motives, and I think that those will be clear in the next couple of days. I mean, already they've canceled debates, and um, so I think that there will obviously be an effect on the elections. Um and we're just going to have, it, it's really sad because we, as, you know, citizens and living in this country, we're, we're a little bit powerless and we're just going to have to watch and see um, how this plays out. When we come back, back we will have, have continue our discussion a little bit on COVID as it relates. Uh, we're going to bring it a little bit closer, though, and see how it's affecting states, including our own. And uh, you're listening to Voices of Reason. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, we're joined by Ann Dent, political consultant here in Utah. And we're talking about, uh, last segment, we talked about the president uh, testing positive for COVID-19. But locally here in Utah, we have been setting records on the daily. Uh, there were it's, At one point, we had over 1,100 uh, cases in a day. I think it was even, one day might have even been even higher. 
but for the longest time we'd hoped to get under 400 now we are on the order of 900 to a thousand almost a day because school has gone back in and people are taking fewer precautions and of course young people think they'll live forever so they don't do very much in the way of uh, you know social distancing or, or minding their their you know just ideas of safety in general because they again they don't really uh, that doesn't resonate with them and I want to know uh, I'm going to ask Anne uh, to kind of join in here what what in the heck is going on here wow if I could answer that Jason like I think I would be a millionaire but I think that one of the things that's going on is our electeds a lot of our electeds are not taking this seriously and because we are in an election they are not doing the things that we really need to be doing um, to see this number see these numbers going down i was really disturbed um on tuesday there was really a great debate before the notorious debate um spencer lieutenant governor spencer cox and chris peterson both um running for governor had a great debate and one of the things that was addressed was the COVID response and Spencer Cox said um, the Salt Lake City School District is the only school district in the state mm -hmm. that has not gone back to in-person learning and that's a huge mistake and as a parent of a child in the Salt Lake School District um, West High School which is in you know major hotspot I just, I just thought this is why uh, one of the reasons our numbers are so high is this, this is so political. And as Amy said earlier, this should not be about politics. We have, we need a mass mandate statewide and, um, really, really discouraged by the leadership, really discouraged. Let me, Let ask, me ask you, you about, about the, the mass, mass mandate. mandate. Do you think it would be, I mean, what difference do you think it would make? I, I mean, I've seen people where it, some people, some of us comply because we listen to the science. Some people comply because it's required and they want to go do things. But there are people who are really adamantly opposed to this and they take great pleasure in defying both the rules of private businesses and the rules of any mandate from the government. And there really isn't a way to enforce it. So, um, I mean, I, I definitely think a mask mandate would get more compliance because a lot of people just don't want the hassle if, it, if it's mandated and it gives cover to businesses. But I just wonder about that because I definitely think we should all be wearing masks, but I wonder about the mandate. What do you think, Anne? Yeah. I absolutely think a mask mandate makes a difference. I mean, Salt Lake County implemented, Mayor Wilson um, pushed back and implemented a mask mandate and our numbers went down. And um, there are going to be the people, of course, course that are pushing against it and saying, you know, you can't enforce this. Um, it, it also hurts, you know, Utah County has a mass mandate and their uh, Utah County Sheriff said, we will for sure not be um, enforcing this. Well, that does not help. I'm so grateful for our leadership in Salt Lake County that has, you know, not said that and backed up our county government that is enforcing this. Um, Enforcing it, meaning let's get out here, let's wear a mask, let's do it for ourselves and other people. So I think it's more of an example. And obviously, you know, no people are going to fight against this. And but I think that when there's mandates, it also shows that our leadership is taking this seriously and that they um, are 
pushing effective and really um, powerful change for this and not just, you know, I'm really frustrated by the weekly governor's um, COVID pressers where he's talking about, let's just be kind to each other and let's just expect each other to wear masks. Well, and, and, and also, also I should I point, point out that, out that then, then people, people are sharing, sharing pictures, pictures of our leaders at fundraisers without masks. And, um, you know, part of, I mean, you know, anyone who's a parent knows this, if you don't put on a helmet or wear a seatbelt, your kid's not going to put on a seatbelt. They're not going to do it except when you make them, right? So if, so you, if want you want that to be drilled into somebody, you have to do it yourself. And I, I think there's some of that as well. Absolutely. I think that, you know, we are not leading as a state in, you know, um, our mandates are, and, you know, we have some electeds that are trying to push, but our majority is, you know, is not pushing. And we see it in our, we see it in our progress, which is, it's frightening. I want to jump jump in in here. here. And uh, because one thing, first thing I want to say is that the reason the Utah County Sheriff said that about not reinforcing is because there are bigger things going on that if he, if he just had to give a ticket or arrest somebody for not wearing a mask, they would do nothing else. And so it, it, as Amy kind of described, it is unenforceable in the sense that there are several million people in this state and having that be the thing that police focus their attention on, trying to make people do that, is it literally would be a nightmare. And so that that's what he meant. Not that, it, it, I don't think it was the idea that uh, he's gonna let anarchy reign. It, it, it was putting too much um, pressure and uh, uh, on law enforcement to then do something that really is should be an individual uh, mandate themselves, and you can do the best you can uh, to to get people to do it. But I, I don't I don't want to uh, push him under the bus because it, it it sounded different than it really was meant. It's sort of like defunding the police. It's it they really need a better marketing strategy, right? I want to mention though that you know in in a case where. We know uh, that this is a serious circumstance. We only got about a minute to go. I know that uh, folks should be more aware of the uh, these numbers getting bigger. It's putting a, a big tax on our healthcare system because that's that's what we really got to worry about. If more people get sick, more people have to go to the hospital. That means resources are being used when we could do better by being smarter. And when uh, when this lieutenant governor mentions that people aren't going to school, this is why they shouldn't be going to school, because before that happened, we had fewer, fewer people uh, getting sick and having them be uh, online away from each other is better than this alternative. And I know we want people to go back. We want things to go back to normal. We want kids to be in school, but we got to figure out a way to manage this rather than do what is, you know, quote unquote, convenient for parents who want to get the kids out and maybe the kids who want to go back to school. That's sorry. This is just one of those times when we got to buck up and do what is right for our our entire community. And it's not going back to school, creating hundreds and hundreds of new cases each and every day. When we come back, we're going to uh, switch uh, topics a little bit. And uh, Amy wants to talk about the Supreme Court nomination uh, of uh, Amy Coney Barrett and its implications uh, wide ranging across this country and, and what that looks like uh, in, in our current uh, political climate. You're listening to Voices of Reason.
We are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, joined by a friend of our show and political uh, consultant, Ann Dent. And uh, Amy, you were uh, wanting to chat about the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. This is in uh, the wake of RBG's, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, passing a couple of weeks ago. And mm-hmm. right now, this has become one of the hot political issues around the country. And uh, right, and, and in a sense, it's, it's a historic time. Uh, this will be another female justice, which always is good, but it also, there's a lot of um, underlying issues with her nomination. Yeah, and I, I think what bothers me about just the discussion around it is that there's been um, all this, uh, there, a lot of people have been setting up rules about, right? They've been saying, don't, you know, you're gonna attack her faith or you're gonna um, treat a conservative woman uh, badly. Um, or that we don't define conservative women as feminists. And all of these things, all these, all this controversy has been created before anyone has, even any congressperson, and even the Senate, has had the chance to debate it. I haven't even really seen a lot of these things in the media, except that these are the things that some conservative people are saying, are, is that, that these are going to happen. And what, what I feel is a little bit gaslit in that, they're telling me there are certain things I can't ask questions about, that I can't talk about. And, you know, I, for one, think women get treated incredibly poorly. If you want to see a woman get treated absolutely appallingly bad, go back and watch the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings and see how they treated Anita Hill when she brought forward uh, allegations of sexual harassment against Clarence Thomas. And I, that's, I, honestly, I watched that as a young reporter and thought, I don't think I'll ever report sexual harassment. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. It was horrible. And, um, you know, uh, it, I, it set us up, I think. But so I think the problem for me is there are legitimate issues with where is the line between your personal opinions and faith and beliefs and public policy. And I know people want to make it an issue of attacking her religious faith. But I think that's a legitimate thing to understand. I also feel like we're giving the nine people of the Supreme Court way too much power. We need to start asking Congress to do their jobs and actually legislate. 66% of this country supports Roe v. Wade as law. That's what Congress should do. They should pass and protect uh, women's right to, to have health care. Basically, that's what I see it as. It's health care. And, and if they could put that in, into law, obviously, they're going to get sued about it. But it's a much better solution than just praying that you know, someone on the Supreme Court will do the right thing. I think we have in our history evidence that the court gets stuff wrong. You can look at Dred Scott, the Japanese internment camps, Citizens United. Those are all decisions that the Supreme Court made that have had horrible negative ramifications for, if not most of the citizens of this country, all of us. And so I think that stop, let's stop looking for a savior in the Supreme Court and start pushing our legislators to do what they were hired to do. And your thoughts? I agree with you, Amy, but I also, you know, there is this underlying also um, thing that I've been observing. Amy Coney Barrett is absolutely qualified to do a lot of things and she's, you know, accomplished. But as a woman, it also seems interesting that, um, how we approach her, right? Um, They are now asking, and I think this also goes along with the lines of what you're saying is that I'm so appalled that we still um, go 
anybody is okay with saying like, she has seven kids. How, or I don't know how many kids she has, but she has many kids. How could she do this job with five or more kids? How could, and I'm definitely not saying that I am, you know, I think that she'd be the person for this, this um, appointment, but the way we look at women in roles needs to change. And I've never heard questions asked about males that we ask about females when we're looking at them for these positions. And in 2020, it's still so prevalent and just shocking to me. It is extremely, extremely disheartening raising a child, a daughter, um, knowing that like, you know, if she goes for a job and they, uh, they're asking these questions that no one really asks about uh, males that are going for the same position, just shocking to me in 2020. I I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, I've been asked those questions. How do you, like when I worked uh, on the news desk, I did night police when I had Rachel, my my oldest daughter. And I can't tell you the number of times inside the building and, and out from sources, what do you do with your kid while you're working? And I'm absolutely positive. My, my colleagues who had children the same age were not asked those questions. And I 100% agree. But I also think we have to also kind of constantly ask ourselves, is this relevant to the job, right? Not the kid thing. I definitely don't think that how many kids you have or are you a good mom or a bad mom? I think those things are completely irrelevant. Where does it, her who she is and what she's doing and what she believes and how she rules the things she's written, the things she said, how do those impact the rest of us? That's what I care about. I don't, she can do whatever she wants. She can be an amazing mom. And, and I, I, I don't, that's not even relevant to me, to what's happening to me. It's all about how do we talk about, I mean, I have a kid whose civil rights are at risk with some of the, her beliefs it, are, is she going to bring those personal beliefs into her public rulings? Those are my concerns. As a, you know, when I think about this, and these are the, the same concerns that anybody would have over any justice nomination, right? And I think what we worry about in general, because we kind of lean pretty far left, you know, comparatively, that the reason we know that the, uh, the Supreme Court is a political body, and it is, uh, it is uh, what do you call it, uh, composed of partisanship based on the people who are nominated. And the presidents who nominate them, whether they're Democrat or Republican, they choose people they hope and, and you know, from their backgrounds would lead them to, you know, pursue agendas that would, you know, follow what they what their beliefs are. But there's got to be some part of them. And this is what keeps me going, because otherwise I would lose faith in the entire system that they try to believe what the law is. Now, there's always certain different interpretations. That's why they have nine of these people all of whom are very smart and very capable. And you just hope that uh, even though she may be a conservative person in her life, that she recognizes, hopefully, that just because that's the way she lives her life, that isn't the way everybody else should have to live theirs. And that shouldn't necessarily be a law based on her personal beliefs, or or anybody's for that matter, whether they're uh, liberal or conservative. And I do worry about that because there's a reason they picked her. And there's a reason a lot of... Uh, legal scholars are thinking that Roe v. Wade is going down pretty soon. But there's part of me that hopes that uh, though I don't believe in, uh, I'm not a, a God-fearing guy or a religious person, 
that common sense will tell them that even though uh, I may not like it, it still may be something that uh, you know the rest of the world could benefit from, and that that's 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 really all that keeps me going because otherwise I, I feel as though I would be uh, downtrodden in my thoughts and 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 have little faith in the system in general. Last comment of uh, Amy, when uh, when you when you think about this, do you worry about um, her personal beliefs? I do because I think. That I mean, just like I think you can't, you can't be always aware of your racial bias or your gender bias. Those are things you constantly have to have to challenge and be educating yourself about and on guard about. Um, I think that um, your faith frames your decisions, and I, I I don't know what her personal belief is on how to separate that. Um, some people I have a lot of faith in. I mean, Joe Biden is a Catholic, um, but he's come out publicly and said, you know, how he would how he would uh, separate his personal beliefs from his public policy. And I think he's evolved over on, on some of those issues, which I think is what we all do. And she's young. Um, you know, I, I absolutely think having faith is a good thing. I, I think um, it frames who you are and how you make decisions. And that's my concern. Um, but I also know that the court, when people get there and the gravity of being the moral conscience and interpreter of laws for the country, is a weighty thing and people don't always do what you think they will do. So I just still think the answer to our distress with Roe v. Wade or anything else, there's a lot of other things that are at issue, um, is for the Congress to step up and do their job. And then, you know, it doesn't matter so much if we have uh, Supreme Court justices that bring in their personal beliefs or don't. When we come back, I want to ask one final question as we approach uh, the the biggest election uh, of the next big election uh, of our lifetime. Uh, does character count anymore in the candidates and uh, people we choose for elected office? And it's it's been something that's rolling in my head around for a while, and I, I want to ask you two about that and, and get your thoughts. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Welcome back. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson, and we are joined by Ann Dent, Utah political consultant and friend of our show. And uh, I wanted to come up and speak on this last segment about character. You know, it used to be um, something that people cared about. I remember watching this. If, if you ever had a chance to watch the American president, Michael Douglas, uh, Annette Bening, it was very good, very good movie. And actually, <laughs> a bunch of people on it, Martin Sheen, there were a lot of people in that show who ended up being on The West Wing, my favorite TV show of all time, by the way. And where is uh, Josiah Bartlett when I need him uh, to be the president right now? So character was a thing. In fact, that was one of the issues brought up in that fictional uh, campaign when uh, Michael Douglas was running against Richard Dreyfuss' uh, uh, conservative uh, character. Uh, character in the show, not uh, character personally. When I look at the people we have to choose from, because... Certainly, uh, President Trump has character issues, and, and I would say the same of uh, Joe Biden, because Amy brought up uh, last segment about how he was involved in the Nita Hill uh, uh, proceedings when that, when that all happened with Clarence Thomas. And to be honest with you, it was not his finest day. He showed himself to be a chauvinist pig. And, and he was one of the leaders, he along with Orrin Hatch, uh, they, they, they were terrible. And they were one of the deplorables at the time, I would say. 
I wonder then, as we come today, we seem to be willing to accept dreadful behavior from a lot of people, whether they're male or female, by the way. Uh, and and when 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 people ask me when the reason I don't like Donald Trump is not because of his presidency; it's because I just think he's a terrible person. He he is uh, a womanizer. He has uh, he doesn't know the truth, or he he never uses it or speaks it, and he uh, is. Uh, intellectually in, uh, uncurious and he just he's all of the things that you wouldn't want in a person who is going to make life altering decisions for the entire country and Joe Biden has a lot of flaws too because he too has had made questionable decisions in his political life and personal life by the way and so you you ask yourself why don't we pick people who have uh, fewer of these flaws and I wanted to get uh, and you you uh, deal in this kind of thing all the time. Does character matter anymore? You know, normally I would scream, yes, it does, Jason. I think it does. We have amazing electeds. We run amazing electeds. But this, this cycle and this administration living in Utah has really... I can't yell that right now. Um, I've watched... Our majority leadership um, either stay silent or um, really stand behind this president that I saw a tweet the other day that said, it's not that he's a bad president, he's a bad person. And so many of our electeds really, really um, defend him. Um, And I don't know if it's just the sheep thing. It's this, you know, straight ticket, like I have to support who my party is supporting. But where do you say, and I I have so much respect for Republican leadership right now that are going out of their comfort zone and are saying, I am not going to support this president or this administration. I am not okay with what's happening. Um, And I think that is happening. And so is there character? Yes, there is. Are people finding it hard to use their voice? Absolutely. I don't know why that is. It's unfortunate because more than ever, we need leadership that's going to stand up and use their voice and say, this is not okay. And if I'm going to be shunned by my party, I'm okay with that. But I have to stand up for what's right. So... I think that there are good. Um, there, There is character and character is important and people are looking for that. Um, so I think that this is not like a straight yes or no answer. I think that it's it's really complex. And um, I want to say that there there is really, there are really great elected officials and we are looking for that and people are watching for that and people are watching for who's supporting what right now, for sure. Yeah, yeah I think... I think- that, that until, until there is, there is a, real a real reward for um, for for being principled, <laughs> right now it's, there's a huge penalty for coming out and, and being principled and and putting country over party or putting your principles over your party affiliation. Um, I think the reward has to be greater than the penalty. I, I, I feel like we what we've learned through through some unfortunate. Uh, character flaws becoming public issues 
um, in the last 30 years or so from, in, from my perspective, and really it started with Watergate, is that, because um, we used to, you know, hands off, and it's not that these guys have less character, it's that we report everything now, we talk about everything now, um, everything is, for some of us, relevant, and some of us, what matters is power, and if I have to use a bad person to get to power, um, that's okay, and I just go back to one of my favorite sayings um, by a guy named John Lund is, you cannot do the Lord's work with the devil's tools. And I just feel like, um, yeah, that you're never going to have a perfect candidate. And obviously, there's lots of uh, flawed people out there trying to do good things. But you have to ask yourself, what policies are they putting forth? And, um, you know, what are they doing publicly? Like, I don't think Mitt Romney is a perfect person. Absolutely not. But I think he's got a set of principles and they guide what he does. And sometimes I agree with him and sometimes I don't. But I think he pretty much tries to stick to those same principles whenever he's making decisions in policy. And the problem is there's no reward for him. So will he win re-election if he tries to run again? Uh, I think so because Republicans really have a stronghold here. But, you know, if he was in a in a tight race like, say, Ben McAdams is, he might have real Real, he, it might be much more risky for him to stick to those principles and go against his party as often as he has, even when all he's doing is pointing out something that really we all agree with, like just a small, like this is a, an appalling thing to say, or the president shouldn't insult somebody. You know, what I think are really simple, um, basic manners. But I think until there is a reward for politicians to be principled when, when it, and, and con, conflict with the party or override the party, I just don't think that a lot of them will do it um, because they want to stay in power. They want to keep their jobs. I'm going to let that be the last word. And I want to say, and thank you again for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, being with us again. And join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vrjasonl at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at Podcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We'd love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of a Loudmouth Project. Thank you. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.